Scripture today is taken from the 21st chapter of the Gospel of Luke. May God bless to us the reading of God's word. Now on that same day, which was Easter day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking to each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? And he asked them, What things? They replied, the things, <coughs> excuse me, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread. He blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Holy Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be receptive to thee. O God, our strength and our redeemer, we pray. 
Amen. What's interested you? Not from obligation or some unhealthy obsession, but interested you for its own sake, for its own beauty, for its own compelling nature, the kind of fascination that has contributed to who you are. We watch for that kind of interest in our children, don't we? I saw it in my own. One of them, still in elementary school, used to watch soccer games on TV, not as a fan, but to study them with great detail. He'd grab a soccer ball and rehearse the moves himself, often against the side of the house to his father's chagrin. Or in the living room when the weather was cold, more than once, Lynn had to take me aside and tell me to stop worrying about the broken outlet covers or the soccer smudges on the wall from a ball gone bad. The other one, who taught himself to read from magazines about guitars, not from school books, and who ruined my soldering iron as he took apart and rebuilt perfectly good electric guitars so he could see how they worked perfectly fine items all in pieces on the garage floor where I wanted to park my car. When I was young, I found that kind of intrigue at church. But not in the parts of church that were designed for teens, but in the parts of the church that were for the adults. I was confirmed I dutifully went to Sunday school. Youth group was fine. I had friends there, and I went on the occasional mission trip. All good. But nothing in any of the age-specific stuff was particularly life-changing. None of that burned within me. But the adult side of it all, that was interesting. Why would these adults, who had so much else to do, do church stuff? Why would they give their money and their time to this? And why would some of them even give their professional lives to this stuff? Among the things that they could do, why in the world would they do church? And so I paid attention. The pastor of my church, a gifted preacher, believed back then that sermons were only for one moment in time and one place and not for others, and so he never printed a sermon, and nor did he ever allow a sermon to be recorded. To this day, he does not know that more than once I snuck back to church for the second service, back into the area behind the choir loft, a lot like our tunnel, and pulled out my clunky 70s cassette recorder and pressed record to record the sermon so I could listen to it later. When every year we had a theologian from Duke Divinity School come and give a series of lectures, I skipped other school activities so I could attend every single one, and I took notes. I learned that church wasn't primarily there to take care of me, or to give me answers, or to give me a social life, but that it was primarily there to shape me, to push me, to feed my curiosity with good questions, and to help me rephrase what the world told me is important, and to break the surface of how things look 
to go deeper than what I was told I should. Oh, you might find that a bit odd for a teenager, but I wasn't alone. There were others who did the same thing, even when much of the church actually seemed to discourage that kind of burn. Maybe we're afraid of that fine line between passionate, healthy faith and extremism. So afraid that sometimes we'll sacrifice exploring the deep end for fear of drowning. But isn't it better to feed the soul with nourishing food than starve it for fear of junk food? I think so. But this sermon isn't about Christian education. This sermon is supposed to be about the burn. About those things that so engage us in life that they can go either toward obsession or toward a healthy expression of the Spirit's work. And this sermon is about how that Holy Spirit works, both inside of us in our experience of faith and outside of us in our walk with each other, with faith in the world. It's about how God can take the burn, however we experience it, and let it be a hint of how the Spirit works. And so this sermon takes place on the road to Emmaus. If you've been around the church for a few years, you've heard the story. It's often read on either the first or the second Sunday after Easter, even though the story it tells actually took place on Easter afternoon. Eric Kuberian tells me that this is his favorite Easter story. I think it's mine too. Maybe because it makes sense of the burn. Or maybe because it has more of those twists and turns that we talked about on Easter morning. Or maybe because in just 22 verses, it packs a pretty sophisticated description of how the Holy Spirit works. Two of Jesus' closest followers, one of them named Cleopas, respond to all that's happening by heading out. They'd been in Jerusalem, and they watched everything that they had worked on, everything that they were so interested in, everything that they were absorbed by, they watched it all collapse. They'd heard the rumor that Mary and others had found the tomb empty, but like the rest, they didn't really know if the body had been stolen or if he was in fact alive, if a crackdown was coming or what in the world was happening. Some of their peers were holed up in their homes waiting, but these two decided it was best to leave. They thought Emmaus might be safe. Maybe one of them lived in Emmaus or had friends or family there who would protect them. Maybe they could get out there without being noticed, so they fled. Probably afraid, certainly confused, grieving, and second-guessing everything. Now, this was a seven-mile walk, which is about the distance between here and the Frank Lloyd Wright spire on the corner of Bell and Scottsdale Road. About a three-hour walk, if you don't stop at In-N-Out for lunch. <laughs> Maybe you should walk that some up Sunday afternoon yourself and see if a stranger joins you. Now, we have cars today, so we don't have people walking those roads, but... Back then, lots of people were walking, and a stranger did join them. 
Remember Mary mistaking Jesus for a gardener outside the tomb? They let the stranger walk with them for a while, and the stranger sensed their agitation. What are the two of you talking about? I don't understand. Really? You don't understand? You don't know what's been happening these last few days? Are you the only one? It's pretty bold, not knowing if this was a friend or a foe. There must be something about the way that he talked to them that broke down their defenses. Sometimes the way a question is asked lets us tell our truth. But of course, the irony here is that this stranger is actually the only one who knows what's been going on these last three days. They tell him anyway. They tell him about what they thought Jesus was going to do, about their disappointment, about the forces that had killed them, about why they had been so engaged with him. And now about their sadness, about their fears, about what they'd heard about his body. And he walks with them, talking with them. He takes them to task for missing the point. I like to think he did it gently, almost teasingly. He takes what they think they know about what they thought they had been taught, about how things are and what's to come, And he goes deeper. He gives them a new syllabus. He turns things over and shows them things they hadn't seen. He helps them ask new questions. Not to reveal conspiracies. Not to take them on wild goose chases or down rabbit holes. Not to somehow say that he alone has the answers. He takes the good in what consumed them. And he asks them to think about it again and look again and notice what they hadn't noticed and learn new things about the one that they had been following and realize the meaning of what they believed. He's got their attention. He's ignited something in them that burns with interest. They listen intently and they rehearse the moves. They break it all apart and put it on the garage floor to put it back together in a different way. They forget their escape and find themselves on a different journey than they had planned. And all of that on the road between here and the spire on Bell and Scottsdale. And then he moves on. He makes no demand for them to follow him. He doesn't try to entice them to a different town. In fact, he asks nothing of them at all. But they ask him. They ask him to come in. They risk everything they were doing to stay anonymous. Because they are now less concerned about their safety than they are about the comfort and safety of the stranger walking with them as night is coming on. He blesses their bread. He breaks it. And as you heard, they realize who he is. Which is what we're invited to do every time we gather around this table and break bread 
and ask Jesus to reveal himself to us. Eyes no longer looking down, sadness softened, resurrection experienced, questions rephrased, and the truth regained. It's the perfect move, the perfect music. And he disappears. He disappears. Now, I've said this before about this passage, and so I want to say it again today. Remembering how the theologian James Loder talked about this disappearance. Jesus disappears because he is no longer an object in their world. They are now objects in his world. And they finally know it. That's what his disappearance shows us. And that is how the Holy Spirit works. It's a flip that flips the flip, that takes our interests and our passions and our gifts and lifts them up to God, that helps us let go of the things that we grab a hold of so tightly to tell us we're happy, to tell us who we are, lets us let go of those things so that God can give them back to us in a holy way, in a way that is familiar but also new, and in a way that is filled by the Holy Spirit. We don't need some physical presence or some tangible miracle or some nailed down point-by-point -point explanation of things to know the truth of the one we follow. We just need him. We need wisdom from the way that his story makes sense of our lives. Grace in his presence that calms our fears. Gestures that reveal his love and tastes of courage that we get from feeling a part of his world. In short, we need the burn. Didn't our hearts burn inside us as he walked with us? Didn't our attention get focused in a new way? Didn't our steps get a little lighter and our fears a little thinner and our hope a little more alive? He disappears, and their search for safety seems less urgent. He disappears, and the night becomes light. He disappears, and they go out into the night, back along the dangerous roads, back along the paths you would never go on at night when it's dark. So eager are they to live in the light, to tell the tale of what had burned within them. When talking about experiencing the Spirit, it's not unusual for people to talk of a feeling of warmth from the tip of their head to their toes burning within them. It's also not unusual for people to talk about a dark room suddenly being filled with light. And some people who talk about the slower, less physical experience of the Holy Spirit still speak of realization and recognition and a new sense of power that turns them outward into life toward the work of love. 
This return from Emmaus to Jerusalem is a key part of this story. This return from any place you go to to escape back to the life that God wants for you. The weight of the world becomes a burning in you for something more. The burning in you for something more moves you to welcome the Spirit. Welcoming the Spirit helps you recognize that Christ is with you. Recognizing that Christ is with you moves you back into life and back into the world and back toward the things that interest you, but in new ways, with a sense of God's presence, with insight, power, and purpose. And what is that purpose? It's the desire to keep it alive to stoke the flame as we feel the burn, to take our interests and our gifts and our experience and lift them up into the light, and to invite others to do the same in the way that Jesus did for Cleopas and his companion. It's to come alongside others when we can, to be curious, to be interesting, to wait for an invitation to give more, And when we are invited to live so God might be seen in us. And then to let go and let God do the work. So the weight can become lighter and the way can become brighter and the world can be changed. And so with the confident hope of faith, We can believe that one day all will say, did not our hearts burn within us? And with the confident hope of faith, we can believe that one day all will recognize Christ in whatever bread he breaks with them. And in the confident hope of faith, we can believe that one day all will discover themselves a part of God's world and live in that light. Amen.